Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us hear the word of God, the regular epistolary lesson for this Sunday, as we find it in the first letter of John, the fourth chapter, part of the sixteenth verse. God is love. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In Christ Jesus, uh, the Christ of Christian fathers, dear friends, you who are here in God's house this morning and you also Christian friends, who are worshiping with us by means of the radio. Today, as you know, is the first Sunday after Trinity. It is the Sunday that begins the non-festival half of the church year. You recall last Sunday we celebrated Trinity Sunday, and that Sunday marked the end of the festival half. Well, that means from now on to the end of this church year, we shall number the Sundays after Trinity, today being the first, and we will find that there will be 24 Sundays after Trinity in this non-festival half of the church year. Today, however, is not only the first Sunday after Trinity, it is also Father's Day, since it is the third Sunday in June. And our text for today is very appropriate for the occasion. Speaking to us in the Word of God is John, the beloved disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And John, in speaking to us in the Word of God, says this about our God, God is love. We may say to ourselves here in church this morning, what does that mean? If we could just bring that down to where you and I live and make it simple, it means this. The fact that God is love in your life and mine, therefore, that means that if the very heart of God is love, if the very core of his essence is love, then it simply means that in your life and mine, God ever yearns and longs for our eternal salvation never for our eternal loss, regardless of what our attitude may be towards him, regardless of how we treat him. That's what it means when the word of God says, God is love. It means that you and I can snub our nose at God if we want to. It means that you and I can be very hostile. It means that you and I can treat him as the very dust under our feet. It means that you and I may turn in rebellion against God, but God still yearns and longs for our eternal good, never for our eternal loss. The one thing that God hopes will never happen to you or me is that you and I would lose our soul. That's what it means when the Word of God says, God is love. And somehow or other, you and I this morning may say to ourselves, that sounds just a little bit too good to be true. You mean to say that we can trample God underfoot, that you and I can thumb our noses at God, that we can ridicule him, that we can laugh at him, and that God still yearns, that from the depths of his soul he desires our eternal good and never our eternal harm, 
that it makes no difference how we react to him, it makes no difference how we treat him, that he still longs and wants us saved. We may say, oh, that can't be like God. God can't be like that. Because, you see, you and I feel we can't be like that, and how in the world could God be a God like that? But on this Father's Day, as we look at God, and the Word of God says that he is love. His very heart, the essence of his being is love. Not only is God that kind of a God, whoever aims for our eternal welfare and never for our loss, regardless of how we treat him, not only is God that kind of a God, but he has demonstrated that kind of love to us, and he's proved it. Look at this in the first place. God promised a Savior to us when we were his enemies. Don't forget that. God, out of love and out of the omnipotence that was his, he brought this universe into being, not only to show the glory of his very being, but also that he might demonstrate his love. And he created man in his own image. And he put man, Adam and Eve, our first parents on this earth, that God might love them and that they might in turn love him. And what happened when God created our first parents and created them in holiness and in righteousness that they might serve him in love? They chose not to love him and they disobeyed and they did that which they knew was wrong. When they ate of the tree that God told them not to eat of and they became God's enemies. And then when you go to the Garden of Eden, what happened? When Adam and Eve realized that they were naked and they ran and they hid themselves, God called, did he not, and said, Adam, where are you? It was the first call of love to God's enemies. And because our first parents were the world, therefore they were you and they were me. And because, again, God said, where are you? There was the love of God. And when God spoke to Satan and to Adam and Eve that day, he said, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. God promised that from Eve would come the seed of the woman, a Savior, who again would bring life and salvation. While we were his enemies, God is a God of love, and he demonstrated in the very Garden of Eden when sin came into the world. And not only did God demonstrate it and promise, but God fulfilled that promise, and he sent the Savior in spite of the way his children treated him. Did you ever read the Old Testament and see just what a response God's children gave him in response to his love? Did you ever say, well, how could God be a God of love? How could God love and desire our salvation and never our loss? How could God be a God who would say that the one thing I never want to have happen is that you be lost in spite of the way you treat me? Look in the Old Testament. Here, Adam and Eve had sons, Cain and Abel, and from Abel was to come the Christ, and Cain killed Abel. You'd have thought God would have said, that's enough, I'm through. And yet God raised up another son, Seth, didn't he? And you come down to the time of Noah. And in the time of Noah, God gave the people, because they were so wicked, 120 years to repent. And God loved them. And yet in spite of 120 years of entreaty, the world turned against God and they forced God to bring destruction, even though God's love continued. His love was not abated. God still loved them and a million times desired their salvation rather than their loss. But because it was unrequited love, it was an unresponsive love to God, there came punishment. But the love of God saved Noah and his wife and the three sons and their three wives. 
Then you go on down to Abraham who dwelt in the home of idols. God's people were forgetting him. And God chose Abraham and brought him from the land of Ur of the Chaldees into the land of Palestine. And God told him that he would have a son. And from that son would come Jesus Christ the Savior. And again, Abraham and Sarah couldn't wait and they didn't believe. And so there was the incident with Hagar and with Ishmael being born. But finally God gave them a son because God loved and then there came from Isaac and his wife Rebekah, there came Esau and Jacob. And Jacob couldn't wait for the birthright. He had to get it by intrigue. And he had to flee for his life. But the love of God was there. And finally Jacob came back and then they sold Joseph into slavery. And they came on down into Egypt and they were down in Egypt over 300 years. And God raised up a Moses and he led them back into the land of Palestine and gave them the land that David came on the throne. And finally, because mankind turned against God, uh, there came Nebuchadnezzar in the year 586 before Christ and destroyed the southern kingdom and carried the Jews away into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. But there was the love of God because a man by the name of Cyrus, the Cyrus who was the Mede and the Persian arose and by the providence of God he enabled the Jews to go back to their own land. And then there came 400 years of silence and then finally God broke the silence and God fulfilled his promise and the Savior that God promised in Eden came into the world. You talk about the love of God, you and I can say, you mean that God is love, that his heart is love, that God ever would plan and yearn for our eternal welfare, never our damnation in spite of the way we treat him. Look in the history of the word of God and you find that love is there and it was demonstrated beyond the shadow of a wish. And today is Father's Day. And as one father to another father, this ought to be the day when we look at God and we say that God is love. Well, that means that in spite of the attitude of man, in spite of the reaction of man to God, in spite of whether man is friendly or hostile, that God ever yearns and longs for a man's eternal goodness and ever is evil, then we ought to say to ourselves today, God, I want to be loved even as you are loved. We as Christian fathers ought to say to ourselves, God, I want to be like you in this. I want to love even as you love me. And if you and I as fathers would love that way, then and only then would we know how to treat our wives who are the mothers of our children. How do you treat a wife? How does a Christian husband and father treat a wife? What's the criterion? What's the principle on which this thing is worth? It's rather strange. Some of you young girls contemplating marriage come. Some of you who are already married have come to me and have said, How do you know that you really love somebody? How can you be sure that even though you have married somebody that you love him? Now there ought to be affection in a home to be sure. I gave you a test once, and I don't know of a better one, to know whether you really have affection and real love and if there's an appeal to your mate. Can you use his toothbrush? I don't know of anything any better. If you can use his toothbrush or he can use yours, there's affection and there's real love. But there's got to be a higher love than that of affection because, again, there are stresses and strains in marriage where there's got to be something even higher. There's got to be this love that God has for us. There's got to be in the home on the part of a Christian father this kind of love that his aim and his longing at all times is for the eternal welfare of his wife and the mother of his children and never to treat her in any way whereby he might jeopardize and endanger her eternal welfare. 
I ask you this morning, can you imagine a home where father and mother are motivated with this love that God has, where both of them have this criterion and this principle in treating one another that this is the basis, that it's love, that there is every yearning for the eternal salvation of the other one. Never to say or do anything that might endanger or that might thwart the eternal welfare of the other person. Can you imagine how under the most grave circumstances any home could ever be broken in divorce? I can't. And yet what sometimes you wives come and you say, but there are problems in marriage. You say, we've been brought up to know a certain thing is wrong. We've been brought up to say again, this thing of sex is wrong. And suddenly you're married, and then suddenly everything becomes right. And you say, we have a guilty feeling in the marital act, which is ours again as husband and wife. What is the answer to that? Again, bear this in mind. When the commandment says, thou shalt not commit adultery, the word adultery, we get the word adulterate from that. And that word means, again, to spoil something that is good. God doesn't tell us that there's anything wrong in sex. There is nothing wrong with marital cohabitation. But God has set that aside for marriage. And it was wrong, not that it is wrong in itself, but it was wrong before marriage, that in marriage it might be used, and it might be used in the love that God has for us. When husband and wife can again, can engage in the marital relationships, the intimate relationship, with a love toward one another that God has to them, with again this kind of love that there is a yearning for the eternal salvation of one another and never for that person's loss regardless of the relationship then that feeling of guilt goes away then there is a love of concern for the eternal welfare and then and only then can you and I have the joy that homes are not going to be broken up. Oh, it does make a difference when we marry him. There was Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens. You and I remember him as a humorist, and we think about his Huckleberry Finn. But after his death, you know, there was published some of his writings, which certainly do him no credit. We know him as a humorist, but how many of us know Mark Twain as a man that was an infidel, a man that hated the very ground God walked on, a man that spewed at God, a man that had no use for him, that treated God as the scum under his feet. You know, he married a Christian girl. And when he proposed to her, she said that I'm a Christian and I want grace at the table. And of course, like all young men, he told her that was fine. He would be happy to have it. And so there was grace at the Samuel Clemens table for a while. And one day when she bowed her head and she prayed, he looked at her and with all the vehemence and the bitterness that he could muster, he looked at her and he said, shut up! I never want to hear it again. From that day on in Mark Twain's home, there was no prayer at the table. Why? Because Mark Twain hated God. It would have been better they had buried his ridiculous writings against God with him. He was a humorist, but he was a hater of God. He never knew the love of God. It was not a happy home. There was no love. Christian fathers, when we look at God and if the heart of God is love and that means that God yearns for the salvation of you and me regardless of our reaction to him, it's going to have to be in the home. 
And because God has made you and me as fathers, the head of the home, whether we want to be or not, God expects you and me to be like him, that we shall be godly in love, that we shall know how to treat our wives who are the mothers of our children, if the home is going to stand. Today is Father's Day, and John, the beloved disciple, says God is love. Look at God, and he says the very heart of God is love. The very soul of his being is love. And that means simply again that God yearns and he longs for our eternal welfare, never for our eternal loss. The one thing that God hopes will never happen to any man is that a man be lost, regardless of how a man treats him, regardless of whether a man tramples him underfoot. And God has demonstrated that kind of love. He is that kind of a God because in the second place know this, that God sent his son to atone for the sins of the world. And the world includes not only those who would be friendly to God, but it includes also his enemies. You've got to stand at the cross of Calvary once in a while, look and say, for whom did Christ die? For whom did Jesus, the Son of God on the cross, bear the guilt and the punishment of the world's sin? Was it just for those who were going to be friendly to God, or did he die for his enemies? Didn't Jesus say one day that scarcely will a man die for his friends? But again, Jesus died for his enemies while we were yet enemies. God loved us. And God sent his only son into the world. Jesus Christ died for the guilt and the punishment of the world's sins, and that includes everybody's. And you and I may say, oh, it seems too good to be true that God could love and always yearn for our salvation and never want our eternal loss. Listen, at Calvary he demonstrated it because Christ, again, that sacrifice of his was an eternal sacrifice. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That in Jesus Christ and in his shed blood there might be provided for the world forgiveness, life, and salvation. Did Christ by his atonement provide the forgiveness of sins only for a few, for the friendly, and not for those who again trample God underfoot? That whosoever, that includes everybody, doesn't it? And there is the forgiveness of sins, God said. I am willing to wipe out of my mind forever the guilt of all men's sins, that I will remember them no more, that God says I'll never even think about them. I will deliver any man from death. I will save any man for heaven because my son on the cross made those blessings available. That's the love of God. And then when you come to Father's Day and we say to ourselves as Christian fathers, what does God ask of us? What God asks of us is this, if God is love, that you and I be loved. Well, that means that you and I be little gods, that we be like God in this, well, that there will be a yearning, a longing, a real concern for the eternal good of all men, never for the eternal evil of a man, regardless of how he treats us. And if that would be in your life and mine, then and only then do we learn how to treat our children. How does a father treat his children? Some of us don't know, do we? When I was a young lad in school, I had some asthma problems, and I went to a doctor who took a very great liking to me, and I used to go out to his home. He didn't have any children, and I said to him, a brilliant man, you've been with me, oh brothers, for years. Finally, in my own boyish way, I said to him, well, Dr. Miller, how does it come that you don't have any children? He looked at me quite seriously and he said, because it's too grave a responsibility to be the father of children. A brilliant man. 
who didn't feel equal to the task. And I'm sure that all of us as parents have said to ourselves at times, who is equal to the task of being a parent for children? And yet we say, how do you treat your children? If God treats us in love that God ever aims for our eternal welfare, then the way to treat our children is this, that at all times this is the criterion and the principle that we will treat them so that we will in every way possible we will help them in their way to heaven and never hinder them. And oh, that means discipline, to be sure. Children do not object to discipline when it is done in love for their eternal welfare. I can think back today on Father's Day. Can't you think back of some of the disciplines you had? I think back of this, for instance. In my home, I could have a piece of bread and butter any time I wanted it. And I could have a piece of bread with jelly on any time I wanted it. But in my home, I could never have a piece of bread with butter and jelly. Never. Why, my mother thought that was extravagance, and so did my father. I could have two pieces of bread, the one with butter and the other with jelly, but you never combine them in my home. That's the way I was. Did I resent it? No. That was extravagance in my parents' language, and we just didn't do it. You talk about discipline, I can remember with my father was sick in bed only once that I can remember before his death, and it happened to be a heart attack. And in those days when a man had heart trouble, the first thing that he was relieved of was the eating of meat. And I can think back as a child in my home, the day the doctor said, you can no longer eat meat. And I remember the reaction of my mother, if father can't eat meat, there will be no meat on our table. And I grew up through my formative years in a real vegetarian home. I didn't know what meat looked like. There wasn't any. My mother said, I will not put meat on the table if your father can't eat it. We're not going to eat it either. We didn't. I can think back, I suppose, that's why I love meat today. We didn't resent it. And even bologna, which I kid about, even tastes good. I don't suppose I'll ever get enough meat. I couldn't have a dog when I was a child, but I got one now. But it was a home of Christian love. I didn't resent it. Because there's got to be discipline, even as God disciplines you and me. And in that love, where there are Christian fathers and mothers, where, again, there is the aim to enhance a child's eternal welfare and never to jeopardize it or to endanger it, there's got to be the discipline also of Christian training. If you and I have come out of a home where our parents brought us to church, we ought to be able to thank God. I see no trouble in homes when Father is along. And I like to look out and kind of get like to see you men. People say churches for old ladies and children. It isn't. It's for men, and I want to see you men. It's for you fathers, and you fathers that are here this morning that have your kids alongside of you. Listen, they're as proud as peacocks of you, and you know it. You are the hero of their life. As far as I'm concerned with my children, I want them to love me not just because I'm their father. I want them to love me because I am what I am. And that's what you want too, isn't that so? Is there any greater assurance that your kids will love you for what you are? Except this, that you have learned to love them with the love that God has for you and me. The kind of a love that you aim for their eternal welfare regardless of how they may treat you and you never desire their eternal loss. I want men in church and I want a man in the pulpit, a man's man. I don't want anybody effeminate and a sissy. 
in the pulpit because we want men. And when men are here, women will be here too. You talk about kids loving you. What greater joy can you have? Your kids and mine will love us if we just treat them with just a little half of love that God has for us. I think back with my one child. She was just four years old. I was studying one morning. She ran up the stairs and came in bright-eyed and said, Here, Daddy, I picked you a bouquet of flowers. She handed to me, and they were dandelions. But I never got a grander bouquet in all my life. What more could you ask for in life than a bouquet of flowers from a child given in love because they loved you as father, they loved you as daddy? That's living, isn't it? Today is Father's Day, and John, the beloved disciple, looked at Jesus, and he looked at God through the eyes of Jesus, and he was able to write, God is love, and God is love, and that means in your life that God ever yearns and longs for our eternal welfare, never for our loss. God is on the side of saving us, and there's one thing that God never wants to have happen in your life and mine, that is that we be lost, regardless of how we treat him. Why? Why, God demonstrated that love because God's love decreed that any man that believes in Christ shall be saved. Any man. Do you understand that? Whosoever believeth in him, that when a man trusts Jesus Christ, God says that man who stands in sorrow of his sin, who knows that he stands condemned, but who puts his trust and his confidence in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, God says, that's the man that I will save, and that's the man that I will love to save. And he didn't distinguish, and he didn't separate mankind, and it made no difference regarding man's color, the color of his skin, or his previous condition of servitude. God has decreed in love that any man that trusts Jesus, and any man can do that, shall be saved, and that the joy of heaven is this joy, the joy of a sinner repenting. Jesus put it this way, there shall be more joy in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons that need no repentance. Christian fathers, God is love. God says, as I live, saith the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked man turn from his way and live. If God ever loves you and me to the point that he yearns for our salvation, would a million times rather save us than to see us lost, then God says, you be loved. When you and I have learned to love as Christian fathers, then we're also going to know how to treat those who come in contact with us and with our homes. The United States is on fire today, isn't it? Oh, you can laugh it off and you can chide it off, but listen, this thing of segregation isn't going to stop. You know it. Let's face it. Whenever a man wants liberty and whenever a man, regardless of the color of his skin, is ready to die that he can have liberty, he is going to die or else. Don't you ever kid yourself. This land of ours is on fire. It's about time we as Christians begin to show our colors. God hath made all of us of one blood. It's about time that you and I are saying that all men are created in the image of God, that a man doesn't have to die to have freedom in this country, or this country guarantees it to him. 
And whether you and I are white or whether you and I are black, if God loved you and God loved me, that God would a million times rather save you and me than to see us lost, we're going to have to love our brother. We are going to have to love him because if we say we love God and we hate our brother, John says we're a liar. And then and only then when we love our brother because God loved us in spite of the way we've treated him, well, then and only then is this going to be a land where all men can say with liberty and justice for all. That's what this land was founded on. And that's the greatness and the genius of this land. That in the love of God we can have the assurance that God dwells in us and that we need not be afraid of the judgment because that kind of love will cast out any fear, any trepidation about death. Because if we can just love our fellow man in Christ even as God loves us and hope and treat a man that we might enhance his heavenward potentialities rather than to thwart them, well, then we can have the assurance that God dwells in us by faith. John was the beloved disciple. He had to learn. Oh, he was just a young man in his early 20s when he met Jesus down at the Jordan, came down from Galilee, you know. And I remember one time when they were up in Samaria and John was there with his brother and the Samaritan people wouldn't let Jesus stay overnight. And remember, he had a hot temper. And he said, Lord, let me call down fire from heaven. Let's burn up this village. And Jesus rather smilingly looked at him and said, Now, son of thunder, bone energies, you better hold your temper. He had a temper, but he had to learn what it meant to be loved like God is loved. But in the upper room, he had his head on Jesus' bosom. You remember at the cross, he was the only one. He stood there with Mary. And again, they boiled him in oil trying to kill him. He was the only disciple that died a natural death. But in his old age, he was the one that had penetrated closest to the heart of Christ. Uh, that, that's why Jesus loved him, the beloved disciple. He knew what it meant to love. Fathers, listen. The world's on fire. The world needs to see demonstrated in your life and mine the kind of love that God has demonstrated for you and me. We have fathers, and some of you have your fathers with you. Mine's the father of memory. And today, when I, when I think of my father, I, I think of the day of my ordination. When I was a child, I moved from Chicago to East St. Louis. But when I graduated from the seminary, my father wanted me ordained back in the home church in Chicago, where he grew up as a boy and where his father and my mother's father were charter members of Zion Lutheran Church. So up to Chicago we went. My father was not a very demonstrative type of person. I wondered what he would do on the day of my ordination because it had been seven years planning to go to college and seminary. And I recall when I started, he said, well, if there's a will, there's a way. We'll manage some way. And I realized what it meant, as all of you do, to put someone through school. But on the day of ordination, I wondered what he would do when at the end of the service I stood there and I knew people would come around and I about had it figured out what he would do. He didn't want to show emotion. My dad walked up to me and he shook hands with me and he just looked at me and he wouldn't trust to say a word because he knew that he couldn't talk and he just looked and shook hands and bowed his head and walked away in a hurry. But today I think of that handshake. There was everything in it that a Christian father could wish for his son. There was pride and there was joy and there was a prayer, but he couldn't show emotion and he walked away hurriedly. Now that 
was my father for whom I have great respect and great admiration. Oh, when we walk the glory road, and I like to think that when we go out of God's house on Sunday, that oh, if we could just sort of walk on air and feel we've been with God and walk the glory road with a little joy. You know, Christian fathers, knowing the love of God and having experienced it, we could just walk the glory road and, and sing with the joy in our hearts, knowing the love of God. But we could go ahead and sing today, Someday the silver cord will break, And I as now no more shall sing, But oh, the joy when I shall wake Within the palace of my king, And I shall see him face to face, And tell the story saved by grace, And I shall see him face to face, And tell the story saved by grace. Christian fathers, God is love. Let's go out on the glory road and let's love. Amen. The peace of God which passeth all human understanding, keep and unite your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen.